Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Franz Cecilio and I'm joined by fellow co-hosts Julianne and Fabiana Corsi. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the Mexican economy, what the Mexican government has thus far done to stop the bleeding, and how a weak Mexican economic recovery could affect North America's recovery as a whole. Joining us today is Dr. Ryan Berg, a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute who focuses on transnational organized crime, narco-trafficking, and illicit networks, and studies Latin American foreign policy and development issues. Dr. Berg has a PhD in MPhil in political science and an MSc in global governance and diplomacy from the University of Oxford. He also has a BA in government and theology from Georgetown University. Before joining AEI, Dr. Berg served as a research consultant at the World Bank, a Fulbright scholar in Brazil, and a visiting doctoral fellow at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. Welcome, Dr. Berg. All right. Hi, Dr. Berg. So to start us off, could you please explain what the state of the Mexican economy was before the COVID-19 crisis? Well, thank you very much, guys, for having me on. Uh, the Mexican economy uh, previously had averaged about uh, 2 to 3% uh, GDP growth every year for, for almost a decade. Uh, starting with uh, the Felipe Calderon years uh, and moving all the way until uh, 2019, uh, which is really the first year um, in that period of time when there was a downturn. Uh, in quarter four of last year, uh, there was a downturn under the new president, Andres Manuel López Obrador. Uh, Mexico is also confronting right now 90,000 or more confirmed cases of COVID-19. That places it in about the top 15 uh, in the world. And so, therefore, we expect uh, Mexican uh, job losses and economic performance uh, to continue on uh, an already downward uh, downward slide. And we saw that, uh, if only briefly, in the early job numbers that were, that were released recently, uh, Mexico lost jobs uh, in GDP in the first quarter of this year. Uh, but economists say it could lose up to a million jobs uh, as a result of the recession uh, from COVID-19. Uh, though the president, uh, AMLO, says he's going to create 2 million jobs. Um, the projected job losses on the year, uh, or rather the GDP loss, uh, should be uh, around 6.5%. That's the economic prediction right now, but I don't think that we can rule out a potential double-digit uh, decline uh, in GDP. So we could see something uh, as high as 10% uh, or more. And um, and one one question that I've, that I've had over the last couple of weeks is, how did uh, President Lopez Obrador's actions over the last couple of years affect the way that Mexico could realistically respond to this pandemic? Well, Andres Manuel has been in the presidency for uh, for a little over a year, uh, let's say about a year and a half. Uh, and since coming into uh, power, he's had a pretty testy relationship with the private sector uh, in Mexico. The private sector uh, wants to get back to work. Um, they have uh, insisted that uh, supply chains are, are quite important to, uh, to Mexico's place in the North American economy, uh, and they want to, uh, to get factories in, in Mexican industry uh, back up and running. Now, they have run into some issues with uh, state officials uh, in, for example, the state of Puebla, uh, VW uh, plants and Audi plants uh, have not been allowed to, to get back up and online, uh, and they say that they won't be able to until about uh, June 15th, even though they've already uh, announced uh, a reopening. But I, I think one of the biggest things uh, with respect to uh, some of the actions uh, that have been taken uh, are just a, a very testy uh, relationship with the uh, with the private sector. 
this particular president came into power uh, having railed for years against the so-called neoliberal consensus. Uh, and so he sees uh, in many ways uh, private companies as, as a neoliberal cancer uh, that has affected uh, Mexico's uh, inequality uh, for the past 40 years. And so certainly in his rhetoric, uh, if not in his actions, uh, he's quite hostile uh, to, uh, to Mexican businesses. And this certainly doesn't give the type of confidence that you need at this point in time uh, to restart an economy. And the other thing that he's done uh, in terms of actions uh, that have really uh, hamstrung uh, uh, the Mexican state in its ability to respond to this pandemic uh, is his pursuit of uh, fiscal austerity. Now, uh, fiscal austerity in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, uh, given that on the other end of the continuum, there's profligate spending. Uh, but his fiscal austerity is a bit different. It's not out of principle uh, for uh, what he believes uh, the, the, the state can, uh, or, or rather the private sector can deliver better uh, than the state. His fiscal austerity, rather, uh, is, a, is a bit more of a destructive nature. Uh, it's vindictive. It really has to do uh, with uh, sort of the way he's come to power, uh, using a, a, a campaign against uh, against Mexican elites, against those who worked in the Mexican government, against some of the privileges uh, that they had enjoyed um, and quite frankly abused uh, in past years uh, in Mexico. And so his fiscal austerity is sort of a bludgeon. Uh, it's it's a way to uh, to, to punish uh, people that he sees uh, as somewhat or largely responsible. Uh, for the uh, the situation of inequality uh, in Mexico over over the last uh, 40 years. And so this situation of fiscal austerity and, and this uh, inability uh, to countenance any sort of fiscal stimulus or large uh, rescue plan uh, has really put Mexico uh, at a comparative disadvantage. Uh, Mexico, as I wrote a couple of weeks ago, uh, is spending uh, less than any other country in Latin America or the Caribbean uh, other than the Bahamas relative to its GDP when it comes to uh, saving its economy and shoring up its industry during this pandemic time. And so the, the fiscal austerity element uh, is really important to note when it comes to Mexico's uh, seeming inability uh, to uh, address the pandemic's effects on its economic performance. Why has um, AMLO chosen to implement austerity instead of funding stimulus packages similar to the CARES Act? and similar to the Merkel-Macron plan that just got released in Europe. And um, could you mind giving our listeners a very brief description of what austerity actually ends up uh, looking like? Well, to give, uh, to give context, um, the, uh, the president agreed uh, finally under pressure uh, to support a, uh, an economic rescue package um, at the end of uh, April or in early May. Um, and that economic, rather early May, I believe, and that economic package uh, is worth somewhere around uh, $26 billion, which for an economy the size of, of Mexico's uh, is far too small. As I said, Mexico is spending um, uh, the least, say, for the Bahamas uh, relative to the size of its GDP um, in terms of shoring up its industries and passing economic relief measures um, during, during the pandemic. So $26 billion, uh, far less than, than what needed to be spent, but still a, a huge concession on the part uh, of the Mexican president uh, because uh, he finally came to, to the realization that he needed to do something uh, to be able to uh, save some of Mexico's industries. Now, in terms of his austerity, uh, the, as I mentioned in my previous response, this is really about 
Um, uh, it, it's about his ideology and the platform uh, on which he ran and, be and became president uh, of Mexico, which is to say that um, uh, most Mexicans, uh, uh, the, the insiders, uh, the, the real members uh, of, of, the, of the entitled establishment class, uh, were uh, profligate, not only in their spending, but also uh, in their uh, enjoyment of all the fruits uh, that come along with uh, being in the ruling class uh, in Mexico. And so this for him uh, is really a show uh, to, to his base of support uh, that he's not going to be like uh, previous uh, presidents of Mexico, for example. He fly, fiscal austerity for him is paired with a very, very uh, personally austere uh, lifestyle. He still takes um, his old white Volkswagen uh, into work. He refuses to ride in the presidential car. Uh, very famously, uh, he is trying to sell the, uh, the presidential airplane uh, and riding uh, in coach class when he flies around, uh, around the country. And so uh, he's also opened up the, uh, the formerly the presidential palace uh, and made it uh, a public museum uh, for average uh, Mexicans to be able to tour for the first time uh, in the country's history. And so fiscal austerity is really paired with, uh, with a personal lifestyle or personal austerity. Uh, that's all part of the, the package uh, of who AMLO is and the kind of transformation uh, that he's trying to make uh, in the country. So the image uh, of him personally goes along with the reality uh, of, of his, uh, his unwillingness uh, to spend money uh, and be seen as profligate uh, in terms of uh, shoring up uh, Mexican businesses. And so when he did finally agree to this rescue package, which, as I said, is worth about uh, $26 billion, far too small, for an economy the size of Mexico's, he also paired that legislation uh, with uh, a piece of legislation that would essentially cut or significantly reduce about ten different departments uh, in the Mexican uh, in the Mexican government. And so spending went side by side uh, with further uh, paring back uh, of the public sector. Okay, so yeah, so you talked about how the president implemented this physical, fiscal austerity. So I'm wondering, uh, how has the Mexican public reacted to this austerity? Are there calls for stimulus plans or are they largely satisfied? That's a great question. I think that there's actually a divergence uh, in the two types of austerity. So for the personal austerity that is exhibited by AMLO himself, the person, the president, uh, I think the Mexican people have, by and large, been uh, very supportive of that. Uh, there was definitely something, you know, he was hitting on uh, when he campaigned uh, on this theme of, of, of sort of profligate spending and profligate lifestyles uh, of, of uh, previous uh, presidents, but also uh, members of their administration. He definitely struck a chord uh, there uh, with that campaign note. And so I think part of his enduring appeal, uh, even now, he's, a, he's about 50 percent uh, we're hovering around 50% approval rating, which is quite high in, in these in these uh, types of polarized times. Much of that appeal, in my opinion, has to do uh, with his personal austerity, which is quite popular uh, among Mexicans. That said, I think the fiscal austerity, as his official uh, stance on what government should do, uh, is not so popular. I think there have been an increasing number of calls uh, for Mexico to do more, uh, especially in the face of, of the economic realities, which show that uh, upwards of 40 percent uh, or more of so-called MIPES, which stands for uh, uh, Micras y Pequeñas Empresas, small and uh, medium-sized uh, companies uh, in Mexico could be at risk uh, because of this uh, pandemic. 
those kinds of numbers don't bode well uh, for someone who wants to remain uh, super fiscally austere. Uh, and so I think the, the patients uh, with fiscal austerity and, and a lack of ability uh, to countenance a, a, a broader a fiscal and economic response uh, is, is having uh, or taking a toll. Uh, and, and Mexicans are, are quite frankly, uh, getting a bit fed up with, uh, with the fiscal austerity. Okay, so to switch gears a little bit, um, are, I'm wondering why is the COVID-19, uh, why is COVID-19 uh, economic and public health crisis hitting Mexico um, especially hard, maybe in comparison to some other Latin American countries? Well, the first thing is that they haven't done enough uh, testing. Uh, and so uh, the, t the testing numbers uh, are far too low uh, for what they need to be. Uh, and so people don't actually have confirm, uh, confirmation about whether they have uh, COVID-19. The second thing is uh, that Mexico started uh, implementing social distancing measures uh, and other public health measures against the crisis uh, far too late, uh, well into the month of April after the epidemiologists were saying uh, to the president that COVID-19 was spreading, uh, if silently, throughout Mexico. He was holding large uh, political rallies uh, where many people were in attendance without masks, of course, crowded together in small places. He was even insisting during this period of time uh, that because it's a part of Mexican culture, uh, we needed to get close to one another, we needed to hug, we needed to kiss. Uh, and so this, no doubt, also exacerbated uh, uh, the problem. Uh, the other issue that I that I might mention is that um, Latin America writ large is a very urbanized area, uh, and Mexico is no exception. Uh, something like 70% uh, of the population in Latin America uh, lives in an urban area. And so what happens is you get a lot of very densely uh, packed urban areas uh, where there is a center and then uh, uh, some suburbs, and then there are even more peripheral or marginalized communities um, on the outskirts. And many people inhabit these marginalized communities where, quite frankly, it's really difficult uh, to social distance if you live in some sort of informality uh, where you have multi-generational homes uh, uh, grouping together, uh, everyone from a grandparent or great-grandparent uh, all the way down to a young child, uh, mul multiple families sometimes uh, inhabiting the same abode, uh, and people living on top of each other. That is to say, small apartments or small houses uh, stacked on top of each other or built very closely together without very much formal infrastructure, without, uh, in many cases, uh, proper electricity, sewage systems, sometimes water and piping. Uh, and so it makes uh, sanitation uh, and, and the practice of social distance, uh, distancing measures very difficult uh, uh, to enforce. And so what we've seen uh, in countries like Mexico and in, and in Brazil, where there is a lot of this informality, where there is a lot of, uh, uh, co where there are a lot of communities um, on the margins or in the periphery, uh, we've seen an explosion uh, of, of cases, uh, of outbreaks uh, in some of these uh, communities because it's just very difficult uh, uh, to practice uh, social distancing, practice hand washing, uh, to practice all the things uh, that, uh, that doctors and epidemiologists are telling us will prevent us from the transmission of COVID-19 and will keep that curve uh, relatively low. I, I want to delve a little deeper into the economic uh, repercussions of COVID-19 in Mexico, because I am 
I, 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 I read in one of your articles, I believe, that Mexico has, Mexico, the Mexican economy basically comes down to manufacturing, um, remittances, tourism, and energy. So I want to um, get your expertise on how the COVID-19 crisis has been affecting those pillars of the Mexican economy and what um, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has been doing uh, to combat it. The last bit that I would add, uh, the only bit that I think you're missing is tourism, which if I'm not mistaken, makes up about 20% uh, of the Mexican economy. So look, uh, the pandemic, no doubt, uh, affects every facet uh, of the Mexican economy, the energy production uh, angle, the tourism angle, uh, remittances, of course, uh, and industry, right? Mexico's beaches um, are completely empty. Many people have canceled uh, their vacations, and I'm not really sure when that uh, leg of the economy uh, will come back. Probably only when people uh, have full confidence that they can either practice social distancing uh, within the resorts that dot many Mexican beaches, or whether or when there's a, a full vaccine or at least some uh, effective treatments. The second issue is the energy production. Uh, angle and that uh, also has a very oblique output uh, outlook, rather because it uh, it depends largely on the uh, on the state of the global uh, oil markets. And as we uh, know and have read in many places, this is the most oversupplied global oil market in a century. Um, notwithstanding some of the difficulties that Mexico has had increasing its production and reducing the amount of debt that its state-owned oil company Pemex uh, has on its books which currently stands at about $100 million, which is the largest uh, and most indebted state-owned oil company in the world. Uh, and then there's the issue uh, of industry and manufacturing. So this is uh, something that the Lopez Obrador administration is, uh, I would say, reluctantly going along with uh, in many cases because the National Manufacturing Association on both the U.S. and Mexican side of the border uh, is quite powerful and quite influential. Uh, these types of industries are starting to sputter back to life. Supply chains uh, on both sides of the border uh, are starting to come back to life. Uh, but it's going to be a very, very slow process, particularly as Mexico also, uh, in many cases, has a state-by-state -state approach. I mentioned in one of my previous responses that the state of Puebla uh, is not allowing uh, car manufacturers like VW and Audi to start uh, again until June 15th. Uh, they could push that date back later. And so without any sort of synchronization uh, between uh, the U.S. side and the Mexican side, and even within U.S. states and Mexican states, uh, it might be quite difficult uh, for the foreseeable future to get supply chains fully back up uh, and running. And the last bit that you mentioned uh, was remittances. Um, and no doubt uh, remittances have taken a, a steep plunge. Um, remittances uh, account for a, a large chunk of Mexico's uh, economy, even more so uh, for the countries just in the south of it in Central America. Many of, uh, much of it is remittances coming uh, from the United States. Um, in many cases, uh, those folks uh, are either out of work, they've lost a job, or uh, they're temporarily laid off. Um, in, in some cases, there are folks who work in, uh, in the informal uh, sectors or who have uh, multiple jobs, maybe some side hustles. Uh, the money of which they send uh, to, uh, to to relatives in Mexico, all of which has been uh, uh, sort of cut off. And so uh, the economy 
has been affected uh, in both formal and informal ways um, on both sides of the border. And I'm not sure uh, that leaders have uh, the perfect answer, the magic bullet here, um, other than just trying uh, to get the uh, supply chains uh, back up and running. But even in that, uh, in that aspect, uh, there are significant headwinds that both the United States uh, uh, and Mexico uh, are facing uh, as we are moving into the implementation phase of the new trade agreement, the USMCA. So, Dr. Berg, earlier you mentioned that AMLO is putting out a very strong, almost populist image of himself. You know, he's putting himself up with the people. He's trying to open up the government to the public. Given this, as well as the economic collapse that you're describing, how has the Mexican public retrospectively reacted to his initial dismissing of the virus? That's another good question. I think that um, people have realized now how slow the administration was uh, to respond. I think that um, in many cases, if we look at public opinion polls um, as the proof of uh, how the public is responding, especially in an era where uh, it's increasingly risky and difficult uh, to protest because protests involve putting oneself at risk in large groups, uh, the two leaders within Latin America who have taken the steepest hit in their public opinion ratings are Lopez Obrador and Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. The two leaders who were the slowest uh, to respond uh, to the pandemic, the two leaders who uh, in some cases have denied uh, the severity uh, of the pandemic, uh, the two leaders who have been seen as the least, uh, I would say, proactive um, in Latin America. And so that says, I think, everything that you need to know about uh, the uh, political costs to leaders um, for being seen as, as not uh, very proactive, not very out in front of this, not taking this seriously, not listening to the epidemiologists, the doctors, and, this, and otherwise scientists uh, who have expertise uh, in these fields. That's another thing that unites the two leaders. Uh, they're generally skeptical uh, as populace of uh, what experts and what science uh, has to say and has to guide uh, a policy. And I think it's shown um, in the, the public opinion polls. I, 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 I do not think that it's a matter of coincidence uh, that really the only two leaders who have taken uh, a significant hit um, in, their, uh, in their public ratings uh, are the two who were slowest to respond and have in many cases um, been skeptical of what uh, science and the epidemiologists have to say about this virus and how to confront it. So let's shift gears to something that we've noticed you've written about quite recently. So how are drug cartels capitalizing on both the economic crisis and the government's limited response to enhance their own power? Well, in Mexico, the influence of drug cartels uh, was already on the rise uh, after Lopez Obrador um, sought to pursue a security policy uh, that was focused on the social prevention of violence uh, rather than the confrontation uh, with whether that, rather than a confrontation with criminal groups. And we saw in 2019 uh, record-setting homicide numbers and a number of law enforcement blunders um, that really embarrassed uh, the Mexican state. And in my opinion, uh, should have forced him uh, to reverse course or at least uh, to realize uh, some of the failures of the uh, policies that he was pursuing. But nevertheless, Lopez Obrador uh, and his apparent um, indifference to some of these uh, blunders, Mexico's endemic uh, state corruption, and a uh, profound health crisis now with the pandemic has all provided opportunities 
uh, for Mexico's plethora of, of criminal groups. And so during the pandemic, we've seen Mexican cartels um, really expand the amount of territorial control uh, that they have in the country uh, and engage in really interesting uh, ways with governance uh, of particular territories. So not just controlling them uh, by force, but also uh, displacing uh, the state in many ways, doing things that the Mexican state is either incapable uh, of doing or unwilling uh, to do to serve poor and marginalized populations in both rural um, and urban areas. So we've seen Mexican cartels, <clears throat> excuse me, dispense food uh, in no fewer than 11 out of its 32 states. It's enforcing quarantines in others. Uh, there have been a number of videos that have circulated on social media, for example, showing members of the Sinaloa cartel engaging in corporeal punishment. Uh, the paddle that they were using to, uh, to hit uh, a man who had allegedly flouted uh, quarantine rules uh, read COVID-19 on it. Uh, there was another famous instance of the, the daughter of um, El Chapo, uh, the famous uh, former head of the Sinaloa cartel, uh, proudly uh, distributing what, uh, what she called the Chapo Dispensas, uh, Chapo supplies, uh, which were foodstuffs and personal protective equipment, uh, which were sort of emblazoned with her father's uh, visage on them. Uh, there was other slick promotional material um, that the Cartel Jalisco used, uh, including even uh, an aerial. Uh, shot that was um, uh, some aerial footage that was shot from a drone, which captures uh, a long line of people, pretty desperate people, uh, being served with relief packages from criminal uh, groups. And so you know, these were these were all very carefully uh, cultivated uh, snapshots, but definitely um, allows the groups to further uh, shape this narrative that uh, they are the only groups. Um, that really care about poor and marginalized populations uh, in certain areas where, where the Mexican state uh, just isn't present, either through neglect uh, or through uh, a lack of capacity. Um, and so uh, the, these, these videos uh, on social media were, were really proliferating uh, a couple weeks ago. And, and my worry and my fear is that uh, these, uh, th this effort at buying goodwill could have uh, effects for decades to come when it comes to the ability of the Mexican state to dismantle uh, criminal groups. And um, uh, expanding on that, actually, um, I am guessing that this uh, empowerment of uh, Mexican cartels throughout the country could possibly lead to more violence. And more violence in Mexico in the past has led to, to, more, to more migration towards the United States. So how, have the US, how are U.S policymakers preparing for the possibility of, of this increased violence in Mexico? I think some had hoped that the social distancing measures uh, and the other things that we're doing to, spread, to slow the spread of coronavirus uh, would also lead to uh, a diminution in, in violence and in criminal activity. Uh, but instead, uh, what we've seen even during the pandemic um, is, is an outbreak of, of record-breaking violence. Um, in countries uh, such as Mexico uh, and Brazil, uh, uh, for that matter. Um, and so uh, it's clear already um, that uh, violence is, is on the rise, even during the pandemic. Um, and uh, and uh, I have no idea what's going to happen uh, after the pandemic, much less when it's going to end. But, but I think the important point to make is we've already seen violence uh, in several states in Mexico 
uh, in several states uh, in Latin America, rather, Mexico and Brazil specifically, uh, on the rise already. Um, in terms of what I would tell to U.S. policymakers, because I'm not sure uh, if U.S. policymakers are thinking this far ahead, but what we really need to do is recommit to the bilateral partnership uh, with Mexico in all of its facets and all of its aspects, be that economic, be that on the security uh, level, be that in the public health space, uh, in a number of different uh, uh, ways, uh, reconnect and recommit to the bilateral partnership, call it what you want, call it a Merida, another Merida initiative, or call it by, uh, by a different name. Uh, but it's clear that uh, really the only way that the issue uh, of violence and insecurity is going to be solved is through bilateral efforts uh, that try to get to the root of the problem on both the U.S. side of the border uh, and on the Mexican side of the border. Okay, so um, in terms of uh, more of the economic effects, so how could Mexico's slower economic recovery possibly affect the recovery of the U.S. economy in the long term? Yeah, another good another good question, uh, specifically uh, hearkening back to something I said in, in one of my previous responses, which is that um, it, it's going to take a long time to synchronize uh, the responses of, of the two countries and even uh, states within them on either side of the border. And the economies are so intertwined and have become so intertwined uh, since the passage of NAFTA and now again with the implementation of USMCA that really uh, the U.S. Uh, economy can't grow at its full potential uh, without the Mexican economy uh, also on track uh, to grow. Uh, that's my firm uh, opinion. You, you can't have growth uh, if it's not a robust uh, economic uh, situation on both sides uh, of the border. And the supply chains um, have become so complex, so expert, so, uh, so fine-tuned in the last uh, two decades that literally we're talking about um, the potential for a uh, something as small as a screw or a, a nail or, or even a smaller piece uh, to completely derail the production of much larger products because those particular inputs uh, are made on one side of the border in a factory that hasn't yet opened yet or hasn't found a way to safely do so. Uh, and the entire product, the entire chain of production um, is derailed or imperiled because uh, one particular factory uh, hasn't yet uh, gotten back online. So this is how sophisticated supply chains have become, how complex they've become, uh, and how difficult it, it might be and how, how patient we might have to be uh, in order to get the economy back going again, because we have no choice. The, econo the, the, the economic uh, convergence between the United States uh, and Mexico uh, is already uh, rooted in fact. This is not something uh, that we can uh, that we can reverse even if we wanted to, and in fact, I think we should look uh, to to deepen it uh, once the economies do start uh, taking lift off. Because I think the 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 Mexico option uh, for U.S. Uh, businesses and and for U.S. production is a far safer one than the uh, than the Chinese option. And I think this is the real opportunity moving forward with for Mexico and the United States is that um, once the economies do get moving again. Uh, can we intertwine them uh, in even more complex uh, and convergent ways uh, to be able to take some of those production and supply chains out of China and put them into Mexico? And just to expand this to the North American regional economy, in what ways, if any, could this affect the implementation of the USMCA? 
Well, there have already been calls from certain uh, officials um, and even sectors of the economy to delay uh, the implementation, that this is not a, a particularly auspicious time uh, to be implementing um, a wide-ranging and ambitious new and updated uh, trade deal. Um, I think that there, there might be some aspects of implementation that are uh, very much uh, delayed. Um, I don't think that uh, some of the dispute settlement mechanisms, for example, uh, will be uh, will be highly popular uh, in this type of environment when people are just looking for growth and, and economic opportunity uh, to to return. I think some of the more uh, complex elements uh, of the uh, labor laws, for example, uh, that Mexico agreed to, uh, and U.S. politicians are quite keen uh, to have enforced. Uh, those might be more difficult uh, uh, to uh, to enforce now when. Mexico is facing a potential situation of a, of a million people uh, without work. I think the, uh, the political leadership in Mexico would, would simply like to get people back to work as opposed to uh, making sure that they get back to work with, uh, with the wages that U.S. politicians would like them to be paid. Uh, and, and those are just examples uh, of particular elements of the, um, of, of the new agreement uh, that might run into some, uh, to some resistance uh, because it's being implemented in this particular very unique moment uh, in world history. Well, Dr. Berg, I, I just want to say thank you so much for coming to the podcast. And the last question I have for you is actually, uh, if you could please tell our listeners where they can go find more writing um, on this issue from, from you and where they can keep up with the news in, in Mexico. So folks can keep up with my work on my AEI profile page. Uh, I also uh, have some social media presence. I do keep a Twitter account. Uh, it's at Ryan Berg, PhD, uh, R-Y-A-N-B-E-R-G, PhD. Uh, I, I try to engage in good Twitter behavior, which is to say tweeting out academic articles, interesting op-eds, interesting opinions and threads that I find to be, uh, to be productive and you can engage with my work there. Uh, in terms of uh, reading uh, work on uh, on Mexico, uh, AEI is obviously doing uh, quite a bit of work uh, on Mexico. Other think tanks in D.C. Uh, are doing the same. The Wilson Institute, for example, um, has a Mexico uh, center uh, with with very uh, with very good people. Um, and for listeners who speak Spanish, uh, you can always go to uh, to to Mexican media such as Animal Político or Reforma or other uh, good newspapers uh, based in, in Mexico to, uh, to, to read uh, in Spanish on what's happening on the ground. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Burke. We appreciate having you. Thank you. Thank you all. It was a pleasure. Don't forget to rate us five stars and leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at HopkinsPofa. That's at Hopkins, P-O-F-A where we share updates and articles that expand on podcast topics and international affairs. Thanks for listening.